Hi, welcome to Rebuilders. My name is Liddy. I'm here with Mark. How are you? Good. We, we've lost... Oh, Daniel's lost his mind a little yeah. bit. Yeah. This is probably like the fifth start of this The episode. fifth start. We tried to start this five times and it was continually stopped, not by pastries, but by Daniel asking the question. It began with the question Daniel asked if Stalin had a dog, <laughs> which then was several minutes of deep dive Googling where we discovered Stalin did have a dog. And it was yeah. apparently nicknamed, nicknamed Stalin's dog, Stalin's dog. Stalin's which dog. I maintain is not a nickname. It's just no. what it is. The black Russian terrier. The, the 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 communist state at the time did not permit creativity around nicknames. It was very, <laughs> very uh, Stalin's dog, Stalin's chair, Stalin's table. Could be a put, good podcast title. Stalin's what? dog. <laughs> Maybe not. Okay. Well, we'll get back to you guys mm. about the uh, Stalin's dog podcast. But in the meantime, we're going to continue with some listener questions, uh, and I'm just going to get right into it. Mm. The first one is from Daniel and not the one sitting here with me. It's Daniel Attaway. Um, what would you add to Mike Cosper's analysis of the rise and fall of Mars Hill in regards to American megachurch ecclesiology? Well, I would not add anything because I've not listened to it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, fair enough. So it's a, it's a podcast for those of you who don't. Yeah, released give us the, by give us the lowdown, Christianity Today, is that right? Mm. Christianity Today yep. on, I think it's a bit of a deep dive into Mars Hill Church in Seattle um, mm. and uh, what went on there with um, Mark Driscoll. Mark Driscoll, yeah. yeah. Mm. And I've been thinking about having a listen. Mm. So, Well, I've not been able to listen because I'm subjected to deep dives into Stalin's dog. <laughs> um, uh, have not listened, currently writing a book. Um, and my research information uh, muscles are being used on other things. Like yesterday I, I'm writing about spiritual strongholds and yesterday I was researching oh, right. how castles emerged in the wake of the Roman Empire disappearing where the prohibition on building private fortifications was laxed and individuals as the state collapsed or the empire collapsed started building their own fortresses. So I was deep into that. So that sounds have not really listened. fascinating. It can actually we, is fascinating. Can I've we got, do a whole episode on that? Oh no! How about you just write a book? I'll write a book on it. Yeah, yeah right. But it is it, it is it is interesting that like okay, segue. Okay, we've gone from Mars. So I'm going to segue into this because it is a slight interesting tangent. But, into castles, castles. Well, well yeah. it's interesting because castles are actually um, castles. Castles for all the UK listeners. Slash, Slash South Australians. South Australians, <laughs> yes. For those who are not Australians, uh, Lydia and I are Victorians yes. from the state of Victoria. Daniel is from the state of South Australia. We say castle and Daniel says castle. However, I will refer to Newcastle as Newcastle because that's what the locals call it, whereas Castlemaine in Victoria is Castlemaine. Yeah, wow. Castlemaine. Well, back to ca castles. Yes. Um, so it's really interesting too because we've talked a lot here about decentralization and what I learned was that castles were a result of decentralization. When the Roman Empire began to uh, yeah, move away from a centralized system uh, under a giant sort of rule of the Caesar, 
um, and that split, and there was a split into you know the different Caesars vying for power. Um, uh, then you had uh, you know the Dark Ages came after that, mm-hmm. and um, in a sense that big you know overarching centralized power disappeared, and Europe went much more, much more into a networked um, uh, sort of configuration. And what that meant was um, that all of a sudden you went from one giant empire into this patchwork. So you think of the medieval period; it's this patchwork yes. of castles. Yes. So really, were like castles were like they're like these little. Um, empires in miniature. Um, and it's interesting too because just to bring this back to culture, sure. um, it's interesting too that I wonder as also this is what I'm sort of uh, currently writing is that as the sort of centralised vision of the American century and sort of globalisation begins to move into a more decentralised sense, before we lived under the protection of all, you know, particularly people living in that American century lived under the protection of that big thing, but now as it's sort of decentralising, mm. will be one of the trends of the future that people sort of create their own personal castles. I don't mean literally, but I mean more sort of you know emotionally, psychically, um, where you know you have to put up your protective walls because it's really interesting. Like biblically, a stronghold is a fascinating image of something that we we enter into strongholds to protect ourselves from anxiety. Yeah. Okay. So if you think about like um, nomads, nomads in order to plant seeds in the ground and grow those seeds had to stick around. So nomads became farmers because you have to stick around for the seasonal cycle mm-hmm. of seeds to grow up from the ground. You all of a sudden then you don't have the advantage of a nomad who who moves around the countryside and people would then build fortifications to protect themselves. So that's sort of what the original stronghold. So in the, in the sort of biblical language, uh, you have this idea of a stronghold where people go to find um, refuge from anxiety. But then you see like David and you know, in the Psalms, they talk about God is our stronghold. Yes. So our stronghold is in the protection of God, not in the sort of fortifications and constructions of humanity. Um, so that means that as we move from sort of the in some ways, you can think about like the American century as a giant stronghold or the mm. globalized world as a giant stronghold. And we're now moving into this more disrupted age where basically people will construct their own personal strongholds, almost like a sort of protective individualism. But then also there's an opportunity where at moments when the foundations of the big strongholds are rocked, that's actually when people have the opportunity to turn to God for uh, their, uh, to be here, for, for God to be. Uh, you know, their stronghold. And, um, you know, there's that image when David, the rebellion against David, and David sort of goes almost back into the wilderness. He's like yeah. leaving Jerusalem as this sort of stronghold and returning into the wilderness. None of that has anything to do with Mars Hill, but I, I enjoyed that tangent. Yeah, that was that's great. Nice little um, insight into what's to come in your book. Well, can I move on to the mm. next question? Um, our next question is from Rachel and... Uh, I'm going to read it verbatim for you Mm. and then we'll dig into answering. So, hey, we have a small church here in a big city, Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Mm. I think COVID accelerated changes to where our church was already hoping to go toward more missional micro churches, outward community focused, et cetera, Mm. rather than simply Sunday morning, week after week. Mm. Anyway, I feel the pushback to it is more around people thinking we've allowed COVID to influence too greatly how the church body meets. Mm. How do leaders encourage changes like this in this transitional time and have the congregation see it as God-driven, not fear or pandemic or cultural-driven? Many churches, I'm sure, are making big changes to how and where they meet, but likely it's not all because of COVID. COVID just sort of pushed them quicker down that road. Yeah. Really good question. Mm. 
Um, okay, so if, if you think about how churches operate, they're, they're, you know, you can almost think about it in three ways. One is like what have we always done? Let's yeah. call it the power of the status quo. Um, and sometimes that can be good in the sense that tradition can get you through certain seasons and you know, there's a reason we repeat some of these patterns and so on. Um, but really that's the force which is like, well, you've got to have church, you've got to have a Sunday, you've got to have a bunch of bodies in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways that struggles with um, you know, what happens when there's a disruption like COVID. Um, and then what you've got is you've got a vision or ecclesiology um, of, okay, well, how do we do church? Um, how do we do church in this place? And what's the most effective form that's going to enable us to be disciples of Jesus? What's the most effective form that's going to enable us to be the kingdom of God in our community, share the good news of Jesus, et cetera, et cetera? Um, you then have cultural forces, um, and cultural forces push us in particular ways. You know, you see some churches whose ecclesiology is deeply shaped by the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to perhaps point the finger, um, uh, it's, you know, you look at something like um, prosperity theology, you say that's where the ecclesiology is heavily influenced by the culture and I would say probably in quite unhelpful ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, th- then, then you've got something different, which we haven't really thought about, and I would say it's the environment which we're operating in. So we've thought about tradition, we've thought about how do, how do we do a more effective ecclesiology, we've thought about the, imp- the push of the culture. What's happened with COVID is we've, we've had this fourth one, it's not really about culture because it's actually something that's happened in the environment where the yeah. environment has changed. Um, you know, it might be similar to say what's happened in you know the growth of the gospel amongst Persian people. Their environment changed where many people had to leave Iran mm-hmm. um, or Afghanistan, where Persian people live and go across the world. That's changed, you know, the face of the uh, church or the fact that the environment, um, yeah, like you you may have to meet in different ways. Okay, so. I think there's that when COVID came along, a lot of people who wanted a different ecclesiology to perhaps what their church was doing, that might be just ordinary people in the back pew who wanted to do church differently or leaders who wanted to move their church in a different direction mm-hmm. saw COVID as an opportunity to then, uh, you know, so it's no use wasting a crisis, to then use that to affect change. Yes. One problem with that is this. COVID is a continually changing complex environment. Mm-hmm. So, for example, when COVID happened uh, first here in Melbourne, you know, I had lots of people and friends and not just Melbourne around the world who were like, okay, well, this is going to be the moment of the um, the small micro house church. Yeah. And even, you know, we set people up for that. So even the first couple of weeks we went online, but then we encouraged people to meet in houses. We had groups of 10, 20. But then the lockdown orders came for houses, you know. Yeah. So – what this sort of situation changing, um, we talked about this last episode, you know, Delta is changing the rules of the game again and we find ourselves in this really interesting place in Melbourne where we – I can't visit your guys' houses. No. Uh, so you can't go into someone else's house physically but our lockdown rules say that we can still have church capped at 100 with masks, social distancing uh, and QR codes. So it's this really interesting thing is that possibly with COVID and possibly in a disrupted world, the actual possibilities are less set by your ecclesiology as they are set by the changing environment. Mm -hmm. Now, we're not used to that. We're used to like, well, let's, you know, have our ecclesiology is the meat in the sandwich between tradition and where the culture is going and we try and create this balance. But now this new element of the environment. So I think that. You know, the essence of this question behind it, like, okay, so what, what's the heart here? The heart behind doing microchurches, reaching out to the community more, I think it's fantastic. It's how do we genuinely live biblical Christian community? 
how do we genuinely share the good news um, with uh, our friends and neighbors? How do we be the hands and, feet and sh- hands and feet of Jesus in the community? And how do we have a genuine discipleship process that we can go through? I think rightly many people are seeing the sort of program-driven church um, has not been delivering that in the way that we thought. The sort of event Sunday type thing has not really delivered that. If we look at the th- last 30 years, the church has continued to decline. We're facing a discipleship crisis at this moment. So I think there's a, a rightful um uh, you know, questioning of that. But what we've got to be careful as well is that I think the solution is not always going to be in the forms. Mm. So, for example, we can't, do, we can't do house churches at this point in time in Melbourne, so we have to yeah. adapt. Um, so I would say for people, like, what are the key defining first principles that you're trying to um, instigate in your church, you know, discipleship, kingdom, you know, moving towards renewal, moving towards revival, growing people in Jesus, you know, evangelism, whatever that may be, and then being more adaptable that all the other ways that we do it, there's a lot of latitude uh, to move in those spaces. I think that's the adaptive approach um, that we need to take uh, in in the sort of next season as the environment is continually changing. Yeah, great answer. I wonder as well if it's – there's also an opportunity to look back to some of the stuff that Terry Walling took us through last season mm. in um, our response to change, yes. not just um, our response as leaders, but also our congregations responding to to transitions, some of them uh, not willing to ad- admit that the change is occurring or that, mm. you know, they're just over everything being so um uh, messy all the time and mm. just gone into this whole space of denial. Um, mm. So, yeah, I'd encourage you to go back and have a listen mm. to, to that Terry Walling stuff as well because I think that's uh, particularly pertinent um, for what is happening in your congregation too. Mm. Uh, shall I head us to the final question for this episode? Yeah. Yeah, great. Okay. Uh, so this one's from Mike and he said, I'm always interested in your take on, uh, in talking marks, if I was planting a church today, what would the model slash location slash key missional goals slash name slash style slash pastries, etc.? Be. Oh, it's, uh, I would cut out everything about pastries. Begin with your pastries. <laughs> <A> great, <laughs> great. Yeah. The early on in planting, you don't have as much resources. 7-Eleven is a good start. And then just have a five-year plan to build up to the, most, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the best pastries you've ever had. Mm. Uh, um, a good question. I think my thinking has significantly changed in the last few years around this in probably – you know, this was five, ten years ago, I've been a lot more enamoured around model. I would have been a lot more enamoured around, you know, even, um, you know, setting particular missional goals, calling it, you know, what you would call it, you know, is it some super hip name or, you know, just call it some traditional name people can relate to. I would not plant a church now without first building a remnant. Mm. And... You know, well, what you will often see in a church plant is um, this thing where you're starting off, you're fragile, um, and so often you'll bring people into the circle who um, 
you know, may not have the same hunger for God or they may yeah. be wanting a different kind of church. They may be, I don't want to be a part of the this big mega church I was part of, now I want to be part of this small thing. Um, or, I'm, uh, you know, like we, we put our um, biases, um, biases, 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 biases over something, you know, like, and often, yeah, there, there's this thing. And often what you'll see, you'll see this dynamic, I've seen it so often with church plants where someone will plant, they get a team and the team gathers and it's all great and they sent off and, you know, you've got the, I don't know, it might be 10, might be 20, might be 30, whatever, might be 100. And, and then they plant. But then almost in the next phase to get to the next level of growth, they've almost got to break through the expectations of that first group mm. of sort of pioneers who actually you think because because you want to grow, there's this anxiety in you to like, oh, I need people because I'm going to be embarrassed if on that first launch Sunday or however you're planting that, you know, it's just going to be me standing there <laughs> like embarrassed. And um, so, you know, you often bring people into the fold um, who don't have the same heart. I think that the engine of any plant, I think any church is a church alive with God's presence. And I would actually plant it now, build it around that yeah. um, and build a remnant. So I think a lot of the uh, principle we've spoken about, you know, building a remnant, people contending, bringing it around worship of God, bringing it around hunger for him, bringing that around his word, uh, people who are genuinely committed to a discipleship journey. Um, they would trump any sort of like, what are we going to call it? What's its style going to be? Um, Red has changed styles multiple times. Red yeah. has changed models multiple times. Um, but what has continued to enable us to do that is an increasing push into, you know, a heart for God. Um, so I think that's got to be the absolute, you know, pole that keeps the entire sort of tent up. Um, so, yeah, that I would focus on creating. You know, I go back to Steve Addison's quote at the beginning of his book on movements. You know, all movements begin with white-hot faith. Mm. So I would focus first on building a group of people with white-hot faith. Yes, you do need to plan about the rest of the stuff, but get that you get the steam engine at the front of your train, um, not the dining car. Great. I'm just going to throw in this uh, last question because I feel like it comes off the back mm. of uh, – what you were just saying, um, Michael has asked if the leaders of a church were serious about seeking renewal, what would you suggest they do? Mm. A great, yeah, that definitely does bounce off it. Um, again, too, I, I think I think what you can't do is run a PR campaign or a communications campaign or even a program mm -hmm. which brings about renewal. What you can do is see where God is at work, whose hearts are being drawn to him, and find the remnant of people within your church um, who are going to be forerunners and, and they're going to be uh, a model of what is to come. Um, I would say don't do that as part of the main functioning of your church necessarily. So, for okay. example, you know, it's not like, okay, we're now changing our Sunday morning service to the revival renewal service. Mm -hmm. um, what I would do is I start something adjacent, you know, on Thursday night after the service. Whoever wants to pray, get up at six o'clock, praise through the night, get people praying, get people studying the great revival histories. Go onto YouTube and, and find, it was Edwin Orr or whatever, and talk about the history of revivals, you know, like mm -hmm. just people listen to that. Throw some books around. Seed, seed, throw seeds out of renewal and revival and see where those seeds land. 
And then as you see those seeds land, and obviously also go back to the classic, you know, personal renewal leads to corporate change, the revival's got to begin in you. Um, but once that's begun, I would then form a space within your church where the remnant can gather and talk about what their heart's about, you know, and make that space the, the safe space for those people to talk about renewal and then allow that to grow and almost allow it to have a magnetic approach. Now, we've talked about before that, you know, Napoleon's thirds where you've got the the first third of a worm or, you know, the other way to think about it's a worm. Mm-hmm. You know, the worm is pulled forward by the front, the mid- middle comes and the last bit's dragged. So what you want to do is you want to create a remnant. You want to inspire them. You want to pour your time into them. Um, you want to invest in those people and, you know, together seeking God, contending for God. And then, in a sense, what that 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 remnant will will and this could take time, like patience. Yeah, it could take yeah, yeah. two months. It could take four years. Um, they, in a sense, become that front of the worm, pulling the rest of the church forward. Will there be backlash and pushback? In every revival, there is. Yeah. <laughs> there is no way to do a church growth renewal revival program without some people pushing back. And someone said to me once, sometimes the people who are complaining that things are changing are often the ones not growing. So yeah. that will happen. This church has changed. Oh, it's different. It's not like it used to be. You know, um, that, that dynamic will always be there. But the heart hungry after God finds others whose hearts are hungry after God, create a space for that to happen, and then allow that just to grow, um, I think is one of the best things that we can do to start to, to move into that, that posture and, and you know, ask God to, to sovereignly move amongst us. Great. I think that's a really great space to leave this round of listener questions. Um, We'll be back soon with some more listener questions. See you next time.